songs that we could sing and the scripture that we could read. Thank you for the reminder as we gather together of both our need of you and your provision for us. Thank you for reminding us who you are, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit. And would you teach us now as we continue our look at your word? This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 2,000 years ago, in a somewhat remote part of the world, an obscure carpenter who became a rabbi walked on the shore of a lake, and on that day there were two fishermen, very ordinary fishermen named Peter and Andrew. And to those two brothers, he said, follow me. And they did. They left their nets and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus came to two more fishermen, actually two more brothers, James and John, and Jesus gave them the same invitation. He said to them, follow me. And they did. They left their boats and they followed him. And one day, not long after that, Jesus came to a tax collector collecting taxes, uh, kind of a despised profession, if you can imagine. Um, I'm sure you can imagine. And uh, the man's name was Levi. And Jesus said to him the same two words, follow me. And Levi got up, he left his booth. We assume he also left his profession. And he left his whole way of life and chose to follow this man, Jesus. And we wonder in these stories or at least I wonder, uh, what else did these people know about Jesus? Or what else did Jesus say to them that would prompt such a, such a response? But the stories don't actually give us that information. And I think that might be because they want us to focus on the invitation, on the command, on the two words that Jesus gave over and over and over, namely, follow me. This man, Jesus, whatever you think of him, walked around issuing that invitation to sometimes individuals and sometimes multitudes. Follow me, he said. Uh, sometimes people would say yes. And for them, it meant things, all kinds of different things. Sometimes it meant high adventure or it meant learning, learning a lot. Uh, for some, it meant poverty. For some, it meant suffering. It meant different kinds of risk. For others, it meant failure. Uh, but for all of them, it meant new meaning and new hope. And then ultimately, too, we know that for many, it meant death. Now, of course, everybody is going to die. The only real question is whether you have found anything worth dying for. Sometimes Jesus would issue this invitation and people would say no. Uh, maybe they didn't want to give up their security or give up their comfort. I think of the story of the young man who apparently had great wealth. We call him the rich young ruler, and he came to Jesus, the rabbi, and asking him what he needed to do for eternal life, and, and Jesus gave him the very difficult challenge, well, go give away all of your possessions, and then he said, come follow me. What's so interesting about that to me is we don't know about what happened to that individual later or others like him who chose not to follow Jesus because we never hear from them again, not in Scripture. Uh, since last fall, our church has been on a journey through what has been, I would say, the most impactful talk ever given in human history. Whatever you might think of it, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was given on the side of a little mountain. And here at the end of this message, having announced what he has called before good news, namely that there is a possibility for people, ordinary people, to have life with God, life lived in God's favor, life lived in God's care, life lived in the experience of God's forgiveness, that life is now available to anybody, anybody, you, me, anybody. It's available even to people the world mostly just kind of writes off. The world doesn't want to care about, doesn't want to think about, doesn't want to deal with. That's part of what Jesus meant when he said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, who cares about the poor in spirit? Well, Jesus does. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, who cares about people who are mourning? Well, Jesus does. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And on and on Jesus went. People that the world doesn't care very much about. And why are they blessed? Well, because Jesus said, if they want to, they can now enter into the kingdom of God. And living there means that you are in the care of a magnificent heavenly father 
And in his care, you have nothing ultimately to worry about, nothing to be afraid of. This God will take care of you. This God will provide for you. He will even help you grow. He will help you change. He will even help you love others, even love your enemies, if you can imagine. He will be with you now, but he will be with you always, never leaving you, never forsaking you. And then we come to the last part of Jesus' message. And here he challenges people to listen to him. He challenges people to obey him and to build their lives upon his teaching. In other words, he is asking people, will you become my disciple or not? And that, I believe, is the great question of life. I really do. You know, will I follow Jesus? Will I be his disciple? A disciple is someone who fully intends to do everything that Jesus tells them to do. The word disciple is used some 269 times in the Bible. And it first and foremost means learner. The idea is that a, a disciple is a student, somebody who's always learning. They're an apprentice. And that's where we get this idea of following, following Jesus. Uh, there's no vagueness in this idea whatsoever. If you are a learner, of course, you know it. I mean, if you want to learn golf or if you want to learn Spanish or if you want to learn brain surgery or car engine repair, you become a student of somebody, whether through a school or through lessons or YouTube or a book, what have you. You choose an appropriate way to learn from someone. Uh, and from them, you learn how to do what they do or you learn how to become like them. And you certainly know if you're doing that or not. If somebody were to ask you, well, are you learning brain surgery? You're not going to go, well, I'm not sure. Let me think about it. Maybe, you know, what a silly, what a stupid response. Here's the thing. As you learn, you may not be a good learner or a good student, but you know if you are a student or not. And so the question again, are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you chosen above all else to follow him, to identify yourself with him, to do what he says, to follow him? This is really important, I think, to understand when considering that question. Being a disciple doesn't mean necessarily being a good disciple. Have you thought about this before? I have. Uh, you know, you can be a really bad disciple and you can even be bad at discipling and you can still be a disciple. Interestingly enough, uh, this uh, is so, you know, when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus interacting with his disciples, half the time Jesus is bawling them out for what kind of terrible disciples they are. Um, but some of, these, some of these might be familiar to you. Uh, Jesus said one time to his disciples, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? You know, they were not trusting. Um, another time he said, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And the answer was, no, they couldn't. Uh, another time he said, what were you arguing about on the road? And you remember what they were arguing about? Who's the greatest? You know, that was their argument. That's what they were talking about as they were going along the road with Jesus. Another time Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That was constantly a problem, not just for Peter, but for all the disciples. And then another time Jesus says, how long shall I put up with you? There might be a little bit of frustration in that, <laughs> in that statement. I'm not sure. The point is, Jesus' early disciples were oftentimes poor disciples. My, how things don't change. It didn't matter, however, because they were still disciples. You see, disciples are essentially committed learners. How long it takes to learn is not really the issue. The idea is that the kingdom of God, this kingdom that you can enter into and become a learner, the kingdom of becoming more like Jesus will become open to you if you believe and if you persist in following. All of Jesus' first disciples were pretty bad disciples at times. Uh, it didn't matter. They stuck with it. They grew and they kept growing right up until the day they died because they had chosen to be with Jesus. They had chosen to learn from Jesus. They had chosen to become like him in their life. 
Now, of course, in our day, Jesus is no longer physically present. So there is a difference with our following Jesus and their following Jesus, at least for a time. Jesus is not here in bodily form. So it's, it is a little different, but that too is actually a good thing. Uh, Jesus said this, he said, nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's a number of things there that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to do. And one of the great blessings of the Holy Spirit is he's everywhere, can be with everyone all the time, um, always teaching, always convicting, always guiding, always empowering, everywhere. And that's better, Jesus says, than having Jesus here bodily present. Now, the fundamental decision that faces each of us is if we want to be a disciple, we will actually have to do what Jesus says to do. Uh, in other words, we have to obey him. And we actually need to define what we mean by obedience. Uh, obedience is often thought to be kind of a bad word in our day, I've observed. Uh, it's generally not a compliment to say to somebody, oh, you're, you're so obedient, you know. We don't know exactly what to do with that. Teachers will praise kids by saying to their parents, oh, your child is such a leader. Uh, oh, your child is such a risk taker. Your child is gifted. Your child is talented. But they don't usually say, oh, your child is so obedient. Parents today, I don't think would know whether to make, exactly what to make of that. Is that a compliment? Is that a cut? I'm not sure they would be sure. Uh, in our day, obedience is poorly thought of. So poorly thought of that when parents are told your child is being disruptive, they kind of wear that like a badge of honor. You know, little Johnny just marches to a different drum. Uh -huh. Johnny is, you know, just a little leader. Yeah. Johnny likes to challenge authority. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. To say somebody is obedient conjures up in our day and age kind of the, the idea that somebody's robotic or that they're compliant or they're weak-willed or they're just kind of a conformist, right? And nobody wants to be any of those things. Well, I would say to you that Jesus really doesn't want his disciples to be any of those things either. Jesus did not say, I've come that you might be a weak-willed conformist and do whatever you're told by anybody for no good reason at all. I mean, Jesus never said anything remotely like that. Uh, Jesus actually made it very clear that what he was looking for uh, were disciples who would be creative, disciples who would take initiative, disciples who would exercise boldness, that they would follow and obey him with joy, not grudgingly. Uh, and the more they do it, the more they do it with growing ease. The, uh, as the power of God works in us, uh, what, we, uh, what a disciple wants to see is we want to see that our hands do what he wants our hands to do and that our, our feet go where he wants our feet to go. And our eyes see what he wants our eyes to see and our, our words say what he wants them to say. Our lives become transformed. We actually become more like Jesus. And when this happens, obedience, of course, is a big part of the mechanism that lets that happen, makes that happen. Uh, when that happens, obedience, life, creativity, joy, love flow out of us quite increasingly and seemingly almost naturally with humility and with courage. And let me just say, courage is uh, quite essential because following Jesus will often mean standing in noncompliance under great pressure against our culture's increasing secularism and increasing intolerance and persecution of anything overtly Christian. Now, all of this happens, you see, in the life of a disciple as we increasingly realize that Jesus is just the most magnificent human being who ever lived, period. That's what a disciple comes more and more to realize. There's nobody like Jesus. The most magnificent human being who ever lived. And then Jesus offers us this great opportunity, the greatest opportunity ever given to human beings, and that is to become his disciple, to identify with him, 
to stand beside him, to be, be part of what he is doing that makes, um, that promises change to come, better change. You see, this matters more to a disciple than anything else following Jesus. And here at the end of this great talk that Jesus gives, Jesus presses urgently for a decision from every listener. The truth is, you know, we must choose. Um, the narrow gate, that's, that's essentially obedience to Jesus or the broad gate. And that is simply anything else, doing your own thing. And that's, that's casual Christianity is one way you could describe it. Uh, that's Christianity designed by you or Christianity designed by me. Whatever that is, though, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's, it's not following Jesus. It's not obeying Jesus, you see. And you will either become a good tree, language that Jesus uses in this message, bearing good fruit, good thoughts, good feelings, good intentions, good desires inside you that eventually issue forth in words and in actions and in service and in generosity that will make other people stand up and take notice and think, wow, look at Bob. Look at the God that Bob serves. Look at what that produces in a person, knowing that God. And so a good tree producing good fruit or the opposite, you'll rot from the inside out. And things like ego and self-centeredness and pride and smallness and pettiness and greed and bitterness and anger will make you worthless to yourself and certainly worthless to anybody else. You will do the will of the Father and flourish spiritually and morally and relationally or you will not and you will perish. And so the fact of the matter is we, we all stand at a great crossroads and these are Jesus' words to us as we stand at this crossroads. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, in the eyes of Jesus, let's be really clear, there is no good reason not to do what he says to do here. Because what he tells us to do is actually meant to bless us. It's to put us on a path to flourish. It's what will lead to joy and what will lead to happiness and what will lead to meaning, even if it's going through difficulty and hardship to get there. It will also lead, and this is the most important thing, to the glory of God. Which if you know anything about what the Bible teaches, you know that you were made and I was made for the glory of God. We're meant to radiate back to God his goodness, his greatness, his glory. What is the chief end of man? Our shorter catechism asks. Well, the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's just the best thing that a human being can possibly do. So there's no good reason not to do it. Um, kind of think of it like this. Imagine uh, that you applied to and you got hired at the greatest company in the world. I don't know what company that would be, but you, you can fill in that blank. And it turns out you get to report directly to the CEO. And he's not just a brilliant leader. He's not just a creative genius. Uh, he's deeply invested in you, in your personal development. And that CEO says to you, you know what? I want you to work on this project. I want you to develop this competence. I want you to build this team as you lead it. I want you to care for this client so that you be, can become a, just a magnificent contributor to the overall progress of this company. And you say, nope, uh, I don't intend to do what you tell me to do. Uh, I want to be on the staff here on the team I want a paycheck. I want an office on the corner there. I want all the benefits, but I do not plan to do what you tell me to do. How long will you have that position? Not very long. Not very long. Or imagine this one. 
Imagine you get selected to be a part of the greatest team in the history of athletic competition, the U.S. women's soccer team. They're pretty good, yeah. And the coach is not just a strategic genius. She's an inspirational figure. She is deeply committed to your excelling on that team. And she says, I want you to do these drills and practice these skills and watch these tapes and study this playbook and practice these exercises so that you can be a contributor, a huge contributor to this team. And you say, no, I don't think so. I mean, I want to be on the team. I'd sure like to uh, be, a, you know, a winner, uh, be a, on this championship team. I want the uniform, but I don't intend to do what you tell me to do. How long are you going to be on that team? Not very long. So now, shift gears with me a little bit. Hopefully that helps to illustrate something that I think is important. Now imagine standing before Jesus one day and trying to explain to him why you never did fully intend to do everything that he said to do. Nope, I'm not going to do it. That would be uncomfortable. Not going to do it. So for you, you see, selective obedience was your plan. Half-hearted measures, that was your plan. Casual discipleship, you might call that. Friends, People far, far, far wiser than me in the ways of Jesus would tell you that selective obedience will simply not bring you to that place of full confidence, full trust, full blessing, full joy in Jesus Christ. Selective obedience, frankly, just doesn't work. There's a line in the, the, big, uh, the big book in AA that I love. Um, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. You understand anybody who identifies himself uh, as an addict or in this case as an alcoholic, they recognize that they're always standing at a crossroads. Uh, that's the issue for them. Every day could become their last day or could become the day of terrible destruction if they make wrong choices and wrong decisions. So, you know, half measures don't work. And this is what it says in the, the big book of AA. It says half measures, it's like a confession that they're actually saying. And it's half measures availed us nothing. So every time we tried to do it half-heartedly, yeah, it wound up not working. It says we stood at the turning point and we asked his protection and care with complete abandon. There is one who has all power. And that one is God. May you find him now. It's like, it's like a confession that half-hearted measures, they don't work. They never have. They never will. And so, you know, to make our condition clear and to make this decision urgent and undismissible as possible, Jesus sort of does here what he often does. He tells some stories. And these are actually two little stories within the paragraph that we just read. And the way to understand them is to set them side by side. And look at what's similar in each story and then look at what's different in each story. And when you locate the difference, you've sort of begun to get the point. In these two stories, you'll notice everybody builds a house. Uh, and that's not a variable. That's not a difference. Everybody builds a house. And in these stories, you could almost substitute the, the word house for the word life. Everybody builds a life. You could say everybody is forming a character. Everybody is constructing a soul, so to speak, badly or beautifully, on purpose or by accident, with God's help or without. Everybody builds a house. Everybody builds a life. And we do this mostly by the choices we make. Now, sadly, here's the deal. We make a lot of choices without making them, right? With no intentionality without thinking about them much. How will I spend my time? Oh, I don't know. We'll just see. What words will I speak? Well, I don't know, just whatever spills out. What are the thoughts that will occupy my mind? I don't really want to put a governor on that. Just anything that comes in, I'll take in. What shall I do with my money? Well, whatever makes me happy, period. What people will I let form and shape me? What do I want to accomplish with my life. And very often we deal with important questions like that just by ignoring the question or by putting off making a decision about it. 
Should I work on my marriage? I mean, I know it needs help, but ah, not now, you know. Shall I deal with this habit that is destroying me? I know I should, but not now. Should I take better care of my body? Should I seek help with my parenting struggles and difficulties? Ah, Not now. You see, when we ignore questions or issues like these, when we put off making decisions about them, well, that becomes its own decision with its own consequences, doesn't it? Life is just that way. Everybody builds a house. You cannot avoid this. I cannot abdicate responsibility for building my house. I cannot push this off on my parents or my peers or my boss or my spouse or my family. It's built mostly on not what happens to me, meaning the circumstances that come into my life, and yet we often think that it does. We think that, boy, the big stuff in my life, it's, it's all a result of the circumstances that come my way. No, not really. It's built mostly on those tiny little decisions I'm making or not making along the way. Everybody builds a house. There's a second constant in these stories that Jesus tells, and that is that everybody faces a storm. This is not a story about storm avoidance, you know, how to avoid the storms. We kind of wish it was. Boy, give me that list. How can I avoid storms? We would like to be able to to go someplace where there's better weather, (laughs) you know, no storms at all. I used to live in Carmel, Indiana. That's where I grew up. And now, of course, I live in Colorado, Where is the weather better? It's a bad day to ask it, but where is the weather better? (laughs) It's better here, (laughs) by far, by far. But this is not a story about leaving Indiana and moving to Colorado. There's no way, Jesus says, to avoid the storms of life. No way. Even having more money, even being really smart, even having a lot of faith in God and praying really hard, bold prayers will not accomplish storm avoidance. Jesus says the storms are coming. They always do. In this life, they always will. You know, the first really big storm in my life that I remember was when I was 12 years old. My dad passed away. And uh, that meant we had to move. It meant my mom had to go to work immediately. It meant a whole lot fewer resources for our family. Meant we had to live in an apartment in the wake of selling the home that we had. Meant changing schools and having to make new friends. And uh, that, was a, that was a time, kind of a frightening time in my life. Uh, it was difficult change after difficult change after difficult change. There were other storms I remember after that. For some reason, it sticks in my mind that a, a storm that happened when my oldest sister got married and she happened to uh, marry an alcoholic. And this was a, an abusive Alcoholic. He was either the nicest guy you ever wanted to meet or he would beat the tar out of you. And it was that kind of difference. That created all kinds of issues, as you can well imagine, uh, in our family. Just kind of reeling with trying to help our sister, my sister, uh, who was just in a mess. Later, my mom married. It was kind of a rebound marriage. I think she thought, boy, these kids need a dad, which was true. <laughs> Uh, but she married a guy who wasn't going to be much of a dad, and he, t- he became physically abusive. I got in a fight with him one time, uh, and I was a pretty big kid, and I had a baseball bat. You can imagine how that turned out. That was a bad thing. Um, I struggled uh, when it came time to graduate from college. I had put my faith in Jesus by this time, but I had goofed off so much in school, uh, nobody really wanted to accept me. Uh, They weren't willing to take my word that I'd work really hard. I hadn't demonstrated that. So that was a big big time in my life of uncertainty and probably some fear there. God, what's my future going to be? I really want to go to school. Later, when Holly and I got married, we had four great kids. But very early on, it became very clear to us that we didn't have the resources or the wisdom or the patience or the cleverness to overcome their sinful proclivities let alone our own. And it became painfully clear that we were not perfect parents, nor did we have perfect kids. The point is just this. 
Everybody faces storms. Everybody. <laughs> and yet somehow every time they surprise us. It's like, whoa, how could this happen to me? <laughs> you know, they shouldn't, but they do. And we think we're so smart or strong that we should be able to avoid the storms altogether. Or if they come, we'll be able to navigate our way through it alone. Just my wisdom. Just my cleverness. But in Jesus' story, the strength of the storm reveals the foundation that the house is on. Did you notice that in the story? And you should know too that in Jesus' story, he's not just talking about problems in general that come our way. He actually has something very particular in mind. In the Bible, the storm is very often used as an image of the judgment of God. Uh, how God does not intend to let this world go on being messed up. God is going to disrupt this world and remake this world. He's going to fix it and make it what it's supposed to be. That's part of what the judgment of God is all about. That's what makes the judgment of God such a good thing. You remember the story of Noah. It's a story about a storm, right, and a flood. And what was God doing? Well, that storm was an expression of the judgment of God on the wickedness and the fallenness, the sinfulness of the world. And that's the idea here actually behind Jesus' storm in these two little stories. God's judgment is coming. Jesus has been warning us about this. The Bible says that just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, every human being is appointed once to live and once to die. And the point is, you don't get to be here because you chose to be here. It was appointed that you be here. And you're not going to leave here because you choose to leave here under normal circumstances. You will leave when it's your appointed time to leave. And it's appointed that you will live and you will die and then you will face judgment, the judgment of God. I am going to be accountable for my behavior, for the things I did and didn't do and said and didn't say. And you will too. Imagine standing before God. Everybody builds a house and everybody faces the storm the judgment. The variable in this story is what foundation you build your life upon. You will either build your life on obedience to Jesus, faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, identifying with him and by grace doing what he says for you to do because you can only do that by grace. You'll do it with his help or in your attitudes and your words and your actions, in your relationships, with your time and your money, you'll do something else. You won't obey him. You won't follow him. It's your choice. And I need to remind you again, half measures will avail you nothing. So, you know, if I'm being honest, I've got to admit there's this part of me that would prefer half measures. I'd like a little bit of surrender to God. <laughs> you know, when it feels like, okay, now would be a good time to surrender. Or I'd like a little devotion when devotion is convenient. Or I would like a little generosity. You know, I'll be generous in this moment because it's not gonna hurt too much. Or I'd like a little help from God when I need it. Certainly I want that. Or I'd like a little distance from God right now. It would just feel better to be a little distant from God. But I'll tell you, you can't live in a half measure house. You, you can't build a house on half a foundation. You know, it's striking that when Jesus describes these two individuals in these two stories, it's striking to me what he does not say. Here's a story. He doesn't say, here's a story about a good man and an evil man. That's, that's not what Jesus says. What he says is there was a wise man and a foolish man. That's what he says. Jesus knew this about us, I think, and that is that we don't usually set out to become evil. It's not like in the beginning or in the early years of our life somewhere, we, we, we decide, I'm going to be an evil person. You know, it doesn't work that way. Life kind of just happens, and through the course of our decisions that we make in our lives, we end up becoming evil. 
I mean, parents understand this. When kids do something that they should not, something destructive, something foolish, something infuriating, parents will always ask the same stupid question. Why? Why did you do that? Why did you do that foolish thing? Why did you cut your sister's hair down to the place of baldness? You know, why did you put dog poop in your mouth? Why did you eat nearly a whole bottle of those little red pills? Why did you do that? Why did you shove Flintstone vitamins up your nose and not tell anyone about it for two weeks? Why did you stick a glass light bulb in your mouth that was so big you could not then open your mouth wide enough to get it out again? Why did you do such a foolish thing? What were you thinking? Parents always ask that same stupid question and children always respond with the same answer. I don't know. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. It just happened. So why did you build your house on the sand? I don't know. Just seemed like a good idea at the time. Just happened. You know what? Nobody gets married with plans to get divorced. Nobody meets somebody at the office with a plan to have an affair. Nobody has a child and plans to neglect them or wreck them or hurt them. Nobody goes out into the world and plans on being greedy or self-centered or unloving or uncaring or intolerant or evil. Nobody plans to go through life bitter and joyless and full of despair. Nobody plans on going to hell. It just happens. So which is it? Rock or sand? Follow or not follow? I would submit that we all need to reflect on this. We all need to give this serious thought and not treat these questions casually. We all need to decide soberly. This is the great invitation that God sets before every one of us through his son. And there are costs to count when you think about making this decision. One of them is the cost of discipleship. That's a phrase actually coined by a great Christian thinker, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If we're being honest, there are costs associated with following Jesus, clearly. (laughs) One uh, is over and over and over and over throughout your life, if you're following Jesus, you will be forced to wrestle with, am I going to surrender to his will or am I going to do my own? That's a constant. Will it be his will or will it be mine? Another one is just this whole thing of laying down your ego and your reputation Will it be for his glory or will it be for mine? Will I take this job for his glory? Will I take it for my glory? Will I do this thing for his glory? Will I do this thing for my glory? A third thing is that very often when a person decides to follow Jesus, there is something in particular, a habit, a relationship, something that a person would have to give up to follow Jesus. Remember for me, I was in high school and I had come to believe in Jesus and it was revolutionary. It was a big experience for me. But I was, I was still smoking pot and I was still vol- involved sexually active and that kind of stuff. And it, it kind of slowly, a matter of weeks, uh, within a month or so, I started realizing, oh, <laughs> he probably wants me to stop this stuff. <laughs> Some of us are slower than others, right? But, <laughs> and boy, I, it got right down to it. These are things I enjoyed. I don't want to stop this. But if I'm going to follow Jesus, and I had already begun telling people that I had started following Jesus, I knew there was some serious hypocrisy in that statement. If, I, if my intention was casual Christianity, if my intention was half-hearted measures, I had to decide. Maybe you find yourself in that situation that you would have to make some decisions around, who knows, money, sexuality, addiction, whatever. It's often that way for people. You know, Jesus means to liberate us from the things that we think we have to have, right? That's called bondage, by the way. I've got to have this. I've got to practice this. This sin I can't let go of. Jesus means to liberate us from that kind of stuff. 
And, you know, the, the cost is not that as you evaluate these things, you say to yourself, you know, I will just try grudgingly harder every day through my willpower to obey what Jesus wants me to do, to obey all these dumb rules. That, that will simply not work. It won't work at all. The idea is, is that I identify with Jesus publicly and privately. And then I acknowledge, I understand that it's through his Grace, I'm going to arrange my life differently. I'm going to arrange my life around practices. Practices like gathering together with other Christians, that becomes a high priority. Why? Because you hear messages that challenge you to grow. I'm going to arrange my life around priorities that were Jesus' priorities. I'm going to arrange my life around relationships that will help me receive Jesus' life and Jesus' goodness, you see. And will result in things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness being formed in me. That all comes from the Heavenly Father. That comes from the Holy Spirit being at work in us and us listening to Him and obeying Him. Of course, becoming a disciple is a lot like getting married and having a child. How many of you were fully prepared for getting married and for having children? I mean, you knew what was coming. You didn't have any yet, but you knew, you knew what marriage was going to be like. I knew when I got married this was going to be blissful. Yeah, it didn't work out that way, but uh, God has actually used my marriage to challenge me about the sin in my life and the selfishness in my life. And Yeah. So becoming a disciple is a lot like getting married or having children where there's just a lot you don't know at the beginning. But as best you can, you do need to count the cost of discipleship. And I would highly caution you against thinking that you can say, I will follow Jesus half-heartedly. I will follow Jesus with these exclusions. That will not result in your blessing or your fruitfulness. Um, Now, there's something we don't talk much about, but that's also the cost associated with non-discipleship because there are costs associated with that. What is the price that you will pay if you do not follow Jesus? Have you thought about that? For me, I can think of a long list of things that would be consequences in my life if I were not following Jesus. I think I would be living with the crushing burden that I felt even before I came to know Jesus. This is as a 17-year-old. And that is, even at that time, I had come to feel deeply that life was meaningless. I had had a friend who took his life at that age. Because he had concluded life was meaningless. Robin Kinder was his name. I think that my life, if Jesus were not in it, would be so self-centered. I would be only about using people and things to get what I want. I think my life would be lonely beyond imagination. Because it would just be about me. I think there would be lots of insecurity in my life without Jesus kind of an enslavement, you know, to ego, to image, to what others think. Without Jesus, I'm pretty sure my life would be a soap opera of fear and self-centeredness and greed. Just how do I get what I want? And then when that didn't happen, I'm pretty sure my life would be ending in despair. And again, back to that word meaninglessness, a meaningless death. For me, the cost of discipleship is, it's not small, but it is exceedingly small compared to the cost of non-discipleship. But you have to decide. What's the cost for you of non-discipleship? When Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, something happened deep within the souls of people who were sitting there. Something that's happening maybe maybe for some of you this morning, because this is just how God works. It's not orchestrated by anybody but God. A person's heart starts pounding, right? And their mind starts racing. And something inside says, this is it. This is it. This is is what I've been looking for. My whole life long. I just didn't know it until now. 
to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be set free of my guilt and my regret and my sin through the grace that Jesus pours out at the cross in his sacrificial death to be able to know God, to have life with God, to love God and have him love me, to have God live in me, to be a part of God's plan to redeem and to fix the whole world. I get to be a part of that, to have confidence that there is life beyond death. I must have that. And if that's what you're thinking, well, you've already decided. Become a disciple of Jesus. And do that today. People did it then in droves and people still do today. They identify with Jesus and they choose to love him. And they would walk through life as his student, his follower, his friend. And they would do it very imperfectly, true. But remember, it's not about how good a disciple you are. Just be a constantly growing disciple. So question, have you done that or have you not? Where do you stand? I would encourage you to get out those cards that you came in and sat upon or gave to put in the chair next to you. Why don't you take those out for a moment? These are words on this card that are just one of many ways of expressing a decision to follow Jesus. And on the card, you'll see these words, I am enrolling in the school of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It's kind of like, okay, I'm in this school. I'm a student. I'm going to stick at this. Some things I'll be better at than others, but I am a student of Jesus. I'm in his school and I make him my master. And I commit to being with him each day. This isn't a Sunday deal. It's an everyday deal to learn more from him, how to live like him. And I do this humbly. There's no other way to do it. You know, if you do it thinking you're doing him a favor, you haven't heard anything I've been saying this morning. I do this humbly in the shadow of the cross and in the light of the resurrection. The resurrection is what promises us eternal life, right? And you put your name there. And I'm really challenging everybody to do this. For me, because I made this decision many years ago. It was 1971. It was 48 years ago. For me, today is a celebration of that decision that I made a long time ago. And it's a re-up. It's a reminder to me to say, you know what? I just need to keep persisting in this. I don't do being a disciple real well, but I'm going to keep doing it. What else am I going to do? You got something better? I don't think so. Jesus is it. And I I would ask you to kind of wrestle with this card. Fill it out. Put your name on it. And if for you it was 40 years ago or two years ago that you made a commitment to Jesus, then write that year in there just as a re-up. Maybe you're new to exploring this thing of faith and you've never thought about this as an option. That's okay. We love the fact that you're here. Maybe you want to take that card home and give it some more thought or seek out getting some answers to questions that you have. We would love to try to provide answers like that. We have things like Christianity Explored, which is a a small group that's going to be meeting in the fall. And that's an opportunity. That's seven weeks long, an opportunity for you to explore and to get answers to the question of who is Jesus and figure out whether you believe his claims or not. Things like Starting Point is another opportunity for people to, to go a little deeper in this and to explore. Maybe you've thought of yourself as a Christian, but obeying him has never been much of a priority until now. And I would challenge you, rethink that. That casual Christianity stuff is crap. And it won't do any good for you. You need to give all of yourself to Jesus. 
And I would encourage you to sign the card and date it as an indication. You know what? Today, going forward, it's just going to be different for me. I'm going to take this whole priority thing of Jesus in my life a lot more seriously. Gang, here's the deal. For months now, we have been listening to these amazing words of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we're devoting ourselves to doing exactly what Jesus asked us to do, which is decide. We are giving him an honest, thoughtful response. So I'd ask you to take a moment right now, take a look at the card, and just talk to God. Again, if it's a decision you've already made, put your name on it. What year did that happen? And then when you leave here, would you put those cards in the buckets that are at the back by the doors? And we'll celebrate that with you as a staff. I hope everybody's in the, in the column of, yeah, I've already done that. That's where I sit. That's where I stand. I am with Jesus. Wow. Let's celebrate that. But I have a suspicion, a few of you, that might be a decision you really haven't made. And today might be the day that you need to make it. You can indicate that on the card. Give him your response to his invitation as honestly as you can. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we we just humbly come to you and acknowledge our need. We need your son, Jesus. We need his wisdom for life. We need his atoning death on the cross because our sins are many and we need forgiveness that comes only from him. We need the infilling of your spirit so that change can be wrought within us so that we can become more like Jesus. We read this message of Jesus, Father, and we find ourselves challenged, challenged to the core because the the tendency, the entropy that happens in every one of us is to do half-hearted measures with our faith to have our lives become more and more about us and our comfort and our stuff and not you, not your kingdom, but my kingdom. Even those of us that have professed faith in you, Father, we tend to wander in that direction. Forgive us. Bring clarity to us. Challenge us to have our lives be about being a student, a follower, a doer of your word and not a hearer only. Thank you, God, for the invitation to be disciples. And we just confess we many times do it poorly, but thank you that we get to get up and find new mercy every morning and walk with you and serve you. Jesus, you are the most magnificent human being who ever lived. Thank you for coming and living and dying for us. We pray in your name, amen.